I mean, why? why? From the Harvard Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, you're listening to Veritalk. Veritalk. Your window into the minds of PhDs at Harvard University. I was curious. curious. I've always wondered. Why is... Where did how it, did we get... Why? 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 I'm Anna Fisher-Pinkert. Last week, we were in Manila talking about the night shift. And this week, we're coming a little closer to home as we continue our series on the secret life of cities. If you live in a city, really any city, but particularly cities with harsh winters, like Boston, you know this sound. It's the sound of your car going over a pothole. And potholes cause all sorts of problems, from inconvenient, like spilled coffee, to downright dangerous, like flat tires or cyclists getting thrown off their bikes. Potholes are a major problem for cities. The city of Boston spends roughly $6 million every year repaving 30 to 40 miles of the city's 800 miles of streets. That's every year. PhD student Elijah De La Campa actually worked with the city of Boston through a fellowship at the Government Performance Lab at Harvard. So one project that I worked on, which is through the What Works Cities initiative funded by Bloomberg Philanthropies, was to help Boston's public works department restructure their road maintenance contracts, their road resurfacing contracts, in such a way that service delivery would be more predictable, more efficient, and more tailored to the needs of citizens. Your research, like you you said a bunch of like mm-hmm. fancy words, but you're researching potholes. That's one of the things we're researching, yeah. <laughs> um, so potholes, I think, are really interesting. You can't see Elijah's face right now, but he is absolutely 100% sincere about what he's saying. He's really into potholes. He can't even walk down a city street without thinking about them. It's particularly on, like, streets and sidewalks. I'm just like, oh, this person didn't do a great job of putting this thermoplastic, you know, reflective line in the middle of the road. I know that in Boston they do a better job of that. I mean, it's just inevitable that I see these things all the time now. (laughs) Potholes not only tell you about the state of your infrastructure, they also tell you about the nature of participation in your city. And that, to me, is is really fascinating, right? They're this hyper-local problem that's really pervasive that the city just couldn't catalog or any city really just couldn't catalog on their own. They actually need citizens to feed them information about where these potholes are in order to actually remedy that situation. So as a citizen, it's easier than ever for you to just take out your phone. If you live in Boston, for example, you could take out your phone, snap a picture of that pothole, go on to the 311 app, and boom, send it off to the public works department, right? Elijah's right about this. I have a little 311 app on my phone, and I can use it to report that nasty pothole from earlier. While working with the city of Boston on improving their road repair projects, Elijah got really interested in apps like this one. The project in Boston was was really fascinating to me because it showed me that there are things, pretty routine things that the government can do for its citizens, like repave a road, fix a pothole, that have this pretty profound impact on citizens' lives. And at the same time that I was working 
with the city, there was other folks in City Hall doing really interesting work. And in particular, there was a team that was sort of exploring the city's response to requests for sidewalk repairs. And what they were finding is that requests for sidewalk repairs were concentrated in really wealthy neighborhoods. And those wealthy neighborhoods actually tended to have higher quality streets on average. And (laughs) the growth of repairs in those neighborhoods was also higher, right? So one way to interpret what they found was this sort of feedback loop between government responsiveness and future citizen requests. It turns out that regardless of which neighborhoods need more repairs, there are groups of people who are more likely to complain than others. You know, frankly, there is research out there that shows that there are, specifically in New York City and Boston, that shows that there are differences in the types of people that complain about things, right? People that complain about things tend to be whiter. They tend to be richer. They tend to be older. So if I am someone who lives in, like, what's a wealthy area that that gets all of these repairs pretty frequently? We'll say Back Bay in Boston. I was, I was going to say Back <laughs> Bay. So I live in Back Bay. I walk out of my brownstone and I see um, a pothole or a, a hole in the sidewalk. And I'm going to... First thing, take out that 311 app. Mm-hmm. And then when I come out next week and see that it's repaired, I'm like, great, I'm going to mm-hmm. use that 311 app the next time I see something mm-hmm. that's gone wrong. Yep. I mean, that is certainly one way to interpret what's going on, right? There's other evidence for this feedback loop idea. A Harvard economics PhD student named Laura Truco conducted a study in Buenos Aires. The city did an experiment. They dug into a backlog of requests to fix broken sidewalks and picked, at random, which ones to repair. And what she found is that requests tended to increase in neighborhoods that got these random sidewalk repairs. One thing that could happen is that you now think that, oh, the government actually listens to me, so it's it's worth my time to actually complain about this issue because... I see very clearly that they respond to me when I ask them to do something. So, you know, if that is, in fact, the calculus that's going on in people's heads, then you could get this scenario where, you know, the rich people complain about something. It gets fixed for them. The rich people keep complaining. And, you know, the resources are pooled into those types of neighborhoods. So you might conclude, okay, we can't trust citizen requests because this feedback loop means that we'll keep getting requests from wealthy, whiter neighborhoods. So why don't we do this the old-fashioned way and let the city pick which roads to repair? Well, there are problems with that, too. Elijah is doing research in an unnamed city. Seriously, he would not tell me which one. And the city manages road repairs purely based on which streets have the most need. And what I find in my research, um, and it's pretty early stage, but what I find in this research is that the intensity of street maintenance in your community is actually negatively correlated with the amount that you engage with your government moving forward. And again, engagement by via citizen requests. So the more times that a crew works on my street, the less likely I am to pick up that 311 app. And you might be thinking, duh, Anna, they just fixed your street. What do you have to complain about? But it turns out that the people on these frequently repaired streets tend to complain less about everything. This negative correlation is strongest for just sort of core bread and butter government goods, things like sidewalk repairs, streetlight repairs, tree repairs, and for things like code violations, which are, you know, related to buildings and sort of permits. And what's really interesting also is that 
this effect is concentrated in neighborhoods that in the past tended to have lower rates of responsiveness from the government. So that's to say that neighborhoods that had to wait longer for governments to respond to their past requests, there is an even stronger negative impact of the street maintenance on future requests in these communities. So it looks like non-participation also has a feedback loop. The more your city government does without your input, the less likely you are to try and give that input. It could be that the government fixing your road, you know, in an unsolicited way has increased your belief in just their latent capacity, right? You think that, hey, my government's actually pretty effective. My road was broken and they just did it by themselves. I don't need to complain because they're just going to fix it for me. Or it could be that, whoa, this was super disruptive to my everyday life. They're fixing the street outside my house. It took them 10 days. I couldn't park. And I don't want to dip back into that well. I know what it's like when the government comes to my, to, to my neighborhood to fix something. It takes a really long time. It strikes me that all of these apps are designed to make the playing field more level, right? Yeah, and they... They do in certain important ways, right? They are a super low-cost participation tool. That is absolutely great. And if we think about potholes again, you know, the city cannot possibly catalog all this information by themselves. So it certainly makes sense for a city to leverage the crowd, to leverage information from its citizens to try and serve them better. But it's really this age-old question of the digital divide, right? Not everyone has access to computers, to the internet, to smartphones, to be able to participate. And, you know, even if they do have that access, they might just not be inclined to actually engage in the way that we want them to. So while technology does, in fact, make it easier for people to to engage with their government, it doesn't necessarily remedy some of those underlying issues that, you know, cause people to behave differently for, for reasons that we don't fully comprehend. <laughs> So do we know what's driving down participation in um, lower-income communities and communities of color? I think that we we don't entirely. That's that's really one of the key open questions in the field. You know, it could be that there are things that are correlated with race and income that are also correlated to your tendency to request things from your government, say, you know, your tendency to own a smartphone, going back to the digital divide that we talked about. But it could be that there's just underlying differences in, you know, the rate at which these communities have trust and put their trust and beliefs in in their government. And certainly this seems like a plausible story, given what's gone on in this country over the past, you know, three or four years with police violence and and sort of instances of uh, of that sort of thing occurring. It's not a, a huge jump to think that certain types of communities would have, you know, less faith in their government. Well, I I guess my question is, how do you encourage people to participate in these programs? Or is that the answer? Is there another, is there an alternative to these apps to get people to participate in these citizen-driven projects? Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of million-dollar question (laughs) that that is, uh, I guess, the elephant in the room that has just not been solved. I mean, personally, I think the answer is probably some mix of these citizen-driven models and the sort of bureaucrat-driven model, right? So the idea that there is a bureaucrat 
working in City Hall who um, has access to information that maybe citizens don't have and knows how to make informed decisions. This is what, you know, they're an engineer. They're trained in this sort of this sort of thing. And, uh, you know, they could really more explicitly take into account some of these differences that we're talking about. Right. They could say, you know, I have this preference for focusing on low income communities because I know that these are the types of communities that are not going to actually be vocal in telling me what's wrong. So, you know, I have this information that shows that, you know, let's say people in low-income communities are more likely to ride the bus. So when I think about my street maintenance programs, I want to focus on bus roads in low-income communities because getting to work is super important, obviously. And we want to make sure that these people who might not voice their concerns are actually being, you know, addressed equitably in our city. Aren't there some downsides to bureaucrat driven decision-making? I mean, aren't some bureaucrats not motivated by all of these good things that you're talking about? You know, either they are um, in positions where they need to get elected or positions where they are appointed by an elected official, and not everyone has exactly the same motivations coming into office. That is absolutely true, yeah. Um, So that is certainly one of the risks, and it's one of the risks that's just inherent in our sort of political system and our local government systems, there is this turnover. Thankfully, some of the bureaucrats that many of the bureaucrats that are sort of hitting the pavement on an everyday basis are not necessarily appointed positions. But to go back to your point, you know, it's a black box. I mean, that's the other thing, right? Like, even if they're doing everything correctly, it's still kind of a black box. And that, I think, is an avenue that we can stand to make some progress on, right? Peeling back that black box a little bit, showing, explaining to citizens more thoroughly, you know, what is road repaving? Why are we road repaving in your neighborhood? Why did your neighborhood get picked over another neighborhood? It seems like in order to do this work and just from talking to you, it seems like you really do think that city governments are important and can do good. 100 percent. I mean, that's yeah, I, I, I'm fascinated by city governments and local governments because it's the level of government that we interact with on an everyday basis. You know, it's the level of government that we interact with most in our lives. You know, I I walked to this interview. I took the sidewalk that my local government maintains. Um, Maybe you took the bus here and that's the road that the government maintains. Maybe you have children that you send them to a public school, the police and firemen that respond to your emergencies. You know, it's local government that really is doing so much for us. And we kind of lose sight of that. I I mean, my my take is that we lose sight of that sometimes. And uh, I definitely think my my experience working with governments has been that there are fantastic people there that are really trying to do right for the world, right for their communities. And, um, you know, elevating those people, elevating their stories, understanding the dynamics of what goes on when they do something for a citizen, as I'm trying to do in my research, like that's that's something that's really important to me. Of course, not everyone has the kind of experience getting to know their city government the way that Elijah has. But it is really nice to think that when I send that 311 request, there's a person on the other side of it. City Hall isn't a monolith. Well, okay, in Boston, it kind of looks like a monolith, but that's another story. City Hall is made up of people. People who make decisions about schools, about services, and about potholes. 
Next time on Veritalk, we're exploring the nightlife of Lagos and Johannesburg in the last episode of our series on the secret life of cities. And we're going to find out how race, gender, and class have shaped how people feel about going out at night. The security guards are trained to notice if people that don't correspond to a certain class uh, idea start lingering into space. And then it's not lingering anymore, but it's called loitering, for instance. That's next time on Veritalk. If you're looking for another story about cities, I recommend the podcast This Week in Health and an interview that I did with Augusta Williams, who's a student at the T.H. Chan School of Public Health, and she's studying cities and heat. Visit hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth to listen. If you like our show, rate and review us on your favorite podcast app. It really makes a difference. Veritalk is produced by me, Anna Fisher-Pinkert. Our sound designer is Ian Koss. Our logo is by Emily Kroll. Our executive producer is Ann Hall. Special thanks this week to Graham Ball, Elijah De La Campa, the Government Performance Lab at the Harvard Kennedy School, and the What Works Cities Initiative, funded by Bloomberg Philanthropies. 